Welcome to the Hope Chapel Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. We currently are meeting again for in-person services and would love to have you join us if you feel comfortable. Our in-person service times are Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 9 or 11 a.m. You can also tune into our live stream on Sundays at 9 and 11 by going to hopechapel.org forward slash live. Please open your Bibles to John 16. We're going to go through verses 25 to 33 today. Um, If you'd stand with me for the reading of Scripture. Jesus says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone. The Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Amen? Amen. Go ahead and take a seat. Is that an appropriate speed, Nancy? I'm going to apologize now. I don't want you to have to like sprain your wrist as I'm just reading through passages. <laughs> All right, uh... uh as human beings, we have essentially solved the proximity problem. Here's what I mean. When I was a kid and my parents would send me to the grocery store, uh, I would have a bike and I'd ride over to that grocery store, but before I would go, I would get a very specific and careful list that included all the things that I needed to pick up. It had to include all the things that I needed to pick up. It had to be clear enough that I could select all of those things from the aisles. Because as soon as I got on my bike and I, I rode down the street, it was like I was going out into the ether, like, no phone. No way to call home. If I didn't pick something up or I got the wrong thing, I wouldn't know until I got all the way back home. You guys have memories like that? Remember before there were cell phones? Now, when my wife wants me to go to the store and buy weird baked goods items, right, that I don't know what they are, um, I can call back as many times as I want to, right? (laughs) I can call for every individual item. If she sends me to the store for, like, xanthan gum, which is either a baking thing or a medication, I don't know, I can, I can literally put her on FaceTime and just glide my phone down the aisle. <laughs> there is really not a proximity problem anymore. We can be, in a certain sense, wherever we want to be. I was, however, in a reading group last year uh, with two other guys who were trying to read a theology book. And um, what made it difficult was one guy lived here, me, in California, another guy lived in Wales, and another guy lived in Australia. And so for one guy, it's 11 a.m., me. Another guy, it's 7 p.m., 
and another guy, it's 5.30 a.m. the next morning. That group didn't last super long. Because the proximity problem is solved, but we could not fix the time zones, right? The entire world operates in such a way that everyone in a certain area gets up around the same time, goes to work around the same time, leaves work, goes home, goes to sleep. I'm not going to reorder my entire life to be awake at the same time that my buddy in like Adelaide is. That's ridiculous. I can't fix a time zone problem. So solving the proximity problem doesn't solve the time zone problem. You all, all sit with me? Are you sure? Okay. How many of you have ever felt far from God? <laughs> Just a few of you. I think people go through seasons where they feel close to God, seasons where they feel far from God. You might feel far from God for a lot of different reasons. Maybe you feel far from God because right now bad things are happening to you. You're in a season of suffering or trouble. The world has beat you up a little bit. Maybe it's beat you up a lot and you feel far from God. Maybe you feel far from God because you don't feel like you deserve for God to be close to you. Maybe you don't feel very good about your behavior or your pattern of disobedience over the course of the last few days or months or weeks or whatever. I don't know. For those of you right now who feel far from God, I'm not sure exactly why you feel far from God, but I can tell you distance-wise, spatially, you are not far from God. Do you know why that is? Because God is everywhere all the time. Is that right? <laughs> Thank you, Snow. Because <laughs> God is everywhere all the time. The word we use for that is omnipresence. God is in all places at all times. You cannot be spatially far from God. We don't have a distance problem when it comes to God. More than that, I don't even think we necessarily have a feelings or emotions problem when it comes to God. Like we've had moments where we're sitting in church and you're kind of beginning to feel like maybe you're about to feel close to God. And then we do like a key change at the right time at the chorus and you feel close. Anyone ever had that experience before? Some of you guys have had that experience? <laughs> Every question I have is a real question. They're all real. I'll, I'll warn you if it's rhetorical. I'll warn you. We don't have a distance problem with God. We have a righteousness problem. What I mean is the, the distance between us and God is not spatial, it's moral. And Jesus is the one who solves that problem for us. So, so right now we're in the farewell address. It's after Jesus' public ministry has ended. He's with his closest disciples in the final days of his life, and he does a series of teachings. It's really just one long teaching, and in this teaching, what he's doing is he's sort of pre-reflecting, if that's a thing, on what is about to happen at the cross and the tomb. He's preparing his disciples to understand what it is that he's about to do. This farewell discourse, it, it begins right after this passage uh, where, where we read about Judas. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what are you going to do? Do it quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. And then we have the prologue of the farewell discourse. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. God is glorified in him. God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, 
In a little while, I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is the introduction to the farewell discourse. The passage we have this morning, this weekend, is often called the epilogue or the conclusion. And in between, Jesus does a series of teachings. He teaches them, as we read last week, uh, that he is the way. Do you remember that? He says to them, I give you the helper, that is the spirit. He says to them, I am the vine and you are the what? Branches. He says, the world hates you because it hated me first. He says to them that he will empower them by the helper, that is the spirit. He tells them that he will turn their grief into joy. And this weekend we read that he overcomes the world. Is that good news? This passage, I think, is actually about a proximity issue. How close are we to God? How close are God's people to him? And I think we often try and answer this question with how we feel about how close God is to us. We have a certain feeling about our proximity to God. We have a certain feeling about whether or not God can hear our prayers. And then we assume that how we feel about God is how close or not close we are to him. But it's not a feeling issue. It's not a spatial issue. It's a righteousness issue. We actually cannot be close to God naturally. Did you know that? We do not begin close to God. We begin far from God because we are born in sin, rebellious against God, enemies of God. Actually wicked, actually unable to stand before a perfect, holy, righteous, just God. That's the actual problem. But God in his kindness, as we've been reading in the Gospel of John, sends his son to live a perfect life in our place, to die a humiliating death in our place to stand as our atonement, as our replacement, as our substitute so that the wrath of God is poured out on Jesus and all who call in the name of Jesus might be saved. That's what the gospel message is. And in doing that, we now, after having called on the name of Jesus, receive all kinds of benefits, the most important being that we receive Jesus' righteousness and are judged by that righteousness. We are also adopted into the family of God. And we now have direct access to God himself. Do you, do you hear when I say that? We have du- direct access to God himself. That is a honestly a, a wild claim. I'm saying that the, the guy who spoke everything into existence, he hears your prayers specifically. You have the right to speak to him in prayer. I think sometimes, and this is definitely my tendency, when I think about the Bible, I think about the Bible in kind of an intellectual way. I like theology, and I like talking about interesting philosophical, theological things. I like thinking historically about the Bible, and I can forget that the Bible gives me these amazing promises. Like, I can read the Bible. It's good, and I should read the Bible. It is the only way I can actually know God, but the Bible tells me I can actually talk to the person the Bible's about. So I think we learn at least three things here about direct access. Direct access. One is this. Uh, we learn... That we have direct access to God because Jesus makes God known. Jesus makes God known. I want to read verses 25 through 28 again. Jesus says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. 
The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. I think we and probably many people have this false assumption that the way that we come into understanding about God is through our use of reason and logic, that we can reason our way to God, that we can think deeply about the things of the world and consider what we might think God would be like and slowly over the course of our lives come to understand who God is using the power of our minds. That's not what the Bible teaches about how we come to know God. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that God is illogical. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that God is irrational. I'm not saying that reason does not support and confirm what we come to know about God. But the Bible over and over and over again tells us that things we know about God, we know because God told us. He tells us through creation, but more importantly, he tells us through his word. We can know who God is, not because we can reason our ways to God, but because God reveals himself to us. And there's this like pattern all over the Bible where we see human misunderstanding and then we see divine revelation. So I want to show you a little bit of human misunderstanding. You guys remember Nicodemus? Do you guys remember Nicodemus? Yes. All right. Thank you. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. You guys remember him? <laughs> a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And the answer to that is no. Nicodemus does not understand what Jesus is saying. Jesus is speaking somewhat mysteriously. (laughs) Just gave up on a word. (laughs) He's speaking somewhat mysteriously. But Nicodemus does not understand. Another one from a bit earlier in chapter 2. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? Does Jesus mean that he's going to destroy the actual temple and raise it in three days? No. Chapter 4, Samaritan woman. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir... You have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So Jesus offered her living water, and she's like, I don't have a bucket. How do I get living water? People don't understand him. They don't understand him. And that's the pattern of our human reasoning about God. I think we can arrive at true conclusions about God, but what we know about him is the result of his own drawing and revealing. That's the language we see in John. Let me show you some Uh, passages like that. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me, what? Draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. 
another one. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. When we think of us coming to know God, we need to think of God revealing himself to us. That he calls us, he chooses us, he draws us, he reveals himself to us, and he secures our knowledge of him. And I feel like I have to do just like one additional side thing that I didn't say last night. Uh, this is not primarily done in, in, in your brain when you think about God, meaning um, I don't think the primary way that God reveals things to you is by, to you is by putting thoughts into your head, I think he primarily reveals himself now in this age where? In the Bible. Jesus says, these things I've said to you in figures of speech. It's not super clear. When he says these things, I think he's probably referring to the farewell discourse, his last teaching before he goes on to his prayer and then ultimately his arrest. He speaks in metaphors and parables and he uses this term, figures of speech. Your Bibles might say illustrations, might say that as well. Let me show you another place where he says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who, sent, who, he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. A, strong, a stranger they will not follow but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. All over the place, the disciples don't fully understand Jesus. Even the people who are closest to Jesus do not fully understand Jesus. It just They simply can't fully grasp it. They can't do that, because until they witness the cross and the empty tomb it would be impossible for them to fully understand what it is that Jesus was about to do. But, again and again, we read in John that Jesus is the one who reveals the Father. It's Jesus who reveals God. Jesus who makes God known. One reason for this is that Jesus is himself the revelation of God. That he is actually showing you who God is because he is the revealing of God. Jesus is himself God. Make sense what I said? You with me? Jesus is God. That sentence is clear. No confusion. Jesus is who? God. Okay. Jesus is God. When you see Jesus, when you encounter Jesus, you are encountering God himself. Everything that's true about God is true about God the Son. Let me show you just a couple places in John where this happens. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Hear about this later when you guys have heard this before. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus responded to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This is uh, one of the places in John where Jesus uses the I am name for himself. If you don't know this in Exodus, Moses is out in the desert and he encounters God in the form of a burning bush. And when Moses asked 
who this God is, what his name is, he says, I am that I am. And then Jesus, throughout the Gospel of John, kind of refers to himself this way. He says, I am living water. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection. And here he says, before Abraham was, I am. In John, we see a Jesus that is God himself. And the rest of New Testament writers came to these same conclusions. I want to show you a few passages that teach these same things. Look at Colossians. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This passage is saying that everything was created by and for Jesus. This passage is saying that he's first preeminent in all things, that in him all things hold together. That Jesus is speaking to the disciples in this room. He's about to be arrested. They see him flesh and blood. And at the same time, somehow he's holding the universe together. Similarly, in in Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, I've, I've read that verse to you like 50 times in my years here. So I'll add one more right now so you guys don't think I'm just going back to the same one over and over again. Hebrews 1.1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Today you will encounter people that that say the Bible does not teach that Jesus is God. You encounter people like that? They're not claiming that Jesus isn't God. They're saying the Bible doesn't teach you that Jesus is God. But it does, and that's important because only God could bear the wrath of God. It it matters that Jesus was divine. The New Testament writers came to the same conclusion that when we see Jesus, we are seeing God. Over time, they begin to develop different ways of talking about it. They they have this word that's not in the Bible, but it's helpful. It's uh, homoousios. It means that Jesus, the Son, is made of the same stuff or consists of the same stuff or substance as the Father. There is not a substantial distinction between them. I think another more helpful way, though, is probably this. When you see Jesus, you are seeing Yahweh. You're not seeing someone else. You're seeing the God of the Old Testament, who parted the Red Sea, who sent plagues against Egypt, who consumed Elijah's altar with fire from heaven. When you see Jesus, you are seeing that God. Jesus is not just revelation himself, he is also a revealer of God, specifically through his mission, through his cross work. I want to read real quickly 26 through 28 again. In that day you will ask in my name, 
And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. I want you to see what Jesus says. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Kind of a strange verse, right? He says, you'll ask in my name, and what I'm not saying is that you're going to ask me and that I'm going to bring that prayer to God if I decide that I should do that. Instead, he's saying, you can pray straight to the Father in my name. What is that distinction? I think it has to do with his cross work. He goes to the cross, he dies on our behalf, he grants us righteousness, we call on the name of Jesus, and over and over and over again in the New Testament, we read about being unified or in Jesus. You remember what I'm talking about? In Jesus, have you heard that phrase before? We are in Jesus. So when we pray, we pray in Jesus' name. We have the ability, through Jesus' work at the cross, to directly access God in prayer. That same God we, we read about earlier. Is, is this like how is an encouragement to you? Yes. Like, as I was preparing, I was preparing this week, do you ever pray and you're like, man, I hope God hears me? <laughs> like, he actually does. Like, because of Jesus' work at the cross, God hears and receives your prayers. He actually does. If you feel like you're futilely praying right now, you're praying in futility. You are not. If you call in the name of Jesus, you have the right to pray directly to God. You're like, how? How do we do that? Um, when I do devotions with my kids, and we read the little kid Bible together, and then we pray, all my kids argue about who gets to pray first. I assume that's a good problem, right? To be clear, they argue about lots of other stuff, too. I just wanted to show you the, the godliest example. And so when we finally, through a series of very intense negotiations, decide who's going to pray first, they'll like all fold their hands, and, you know, and then we're ready to pray, and they go, okay, what's first? And I say, say, dear Heavenly Father, and they go, dear Heavenly Father, what's next? Right? And I like lead them through a prayer. Anyone have this experience? They're like, I don't really know how to pray. I just kind of like want to pray what you want me to pray. <laughs> like tell me the words to say and I'll say it. Anyone ever feel that way? Yeah. Tell me the words to say and I'll say it. Let me show you some words that you can say. This is how you pray. You look to examples in the New Testament. If you don't know how to pray, look at these examples. Go with me to Ephesians. Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with his power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, 
To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. When we see Jesus, we see God. Christian, I know I did that out of order. I'm sorry I did that to you. Guy in the back is named Christian. Many of you are also Christians. His name is Christian. He's also a Christian. I want, us, I want us to see this, this last verse right here in verse 28. He says, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Most commentators and most theologians believe that's simply a giant summary of the work that Jesus has come to do. Let me show you this quote from D.A. Carson, who I really like. None of the gospel writers suggests that any of Jesus' disciples made much sense of the cross until after the resurrection. And it is in this most dramatic of divine self-disclosures, in this shame and triumph of death, in this eschatological victory of death and resurrection, that the ultimate significance of Jesus is to be found, and therefore also the clearest display of the character and purposes of God. When the disciples later would come to understand what Jesus has done, they could understand what it meant specifically for God to love them. They could understand what it meant specifically for God to be just, and then how God could be loving and just at the same time, how he could be just and the justifier of the one who believes. We have direct access because Jesus makes God known. Amen? We also have direct access despite our insufficiency. We read 29 through, through 32. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming indeed. It has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone. For the Father is with me. Have you ever thought you understood something and then it turns out you didn't? The disciples are like, we get it, Jesus. You were speaking figuratively, but obviously you're no longer speaking figuratively. You're speaking plainly to us now. We totally understand you. They say, you have no need for anyone to question you. And probably what they mean by that is, you know everything so well that you know exactly what sort of questions will need to be asked. If they don't need to be asked, you can just go ahead and answer them ahead of time. Jesus is prepared for the answers of the questions you've not even asked. They're like, we get it, we understand, we get it. How does Jesus respond? He's like, well, the next few days are not going to go great for you. <laughs> you think you are with me, but you are actually not with me. He's already told Peter that Peter's going to deny him three times. He tells them you will be scattered you're going to run away to your own homes. They actually do not yet believe. He's also saying to them that soon they will have direct access to the Father. He's saying both these things at the same time. They're going to abandon him, yet they're in God's family and can pray to the Father. Worldly access does not look like spiritual access, let's say. Like, I don't have access to everyone and everything that I want. Is that right? Yeah. Like, for example, 
I can't go to the closest government building and be like, I'd like to speak to the president. That wouldn't work. I'm more likely to see a policeman than the president if I do that. <laughs> if I wanted to speak to the president, I would need to probably have lived a very different life <laughs> than the one I've already lived. I would need to maybe go to law school and get a law degree and maybe serve in the military and develop this really notable career and maybe run for office and slowly over the course of many years become the sort of person that would be granted access to the president. But that's not how our access to God works. That sort of access is an access of sufficiency. I become sufficient to access various public, powerful figures. That is not how our divine access to God works. The disciples, I think, think that the access look a lot more like that. I think that they assumed that their access to God was the result of the fact that they understood Jesus well. They were his best students. They totally got him. And I, like, whenever I read the disciples' self-assured, like, self-righteous, like, I understand, I definitely always, I hear my own voice here. Like, I get you, Jesus. I understand you. I totally understand everything you're saying, Jesus. And Jesus is like, if you did, you would behave differently. <laughs> the disciples had not earned access. Their next few days will not be great. They will turn out to be more afraid of the Romans than they are devoted to Jesus. No one will stay by Jesus' side as he goes to the cross. They will deny him, pretend like they don't know him. When they realize how much skin they need to put in the game, they leave. They do not stay around. But their access to God is still given to them despite their weaknesses and insufficiencies. Let me ask you a question. Do you ever fear that God does not hear your prayers because of the quality of your life? Maybe some of you feel like you have not been obedient enough, you have not been righteous enough, you've not obeyed God enough in order for God to take your prayers seriously. Maybe some of you feel insignificant, like you think about the insane size of the universe that God spoke into existence and how small you are on this tiny rock, and you think, no way God hears my prayers. No way he does. Our direct access to God, our access to God is not based on our righteousness. It's based on the righteousness of Christ. It is not based on our faithfulness. It's based on the faithfulness of Christ. It's not based on our goodness. It's based on the goodness of Christ. It is so important for us to understand that the access we have in prayer to God cannot be taken away from us because it's earned by someone who was perfect and who stays perfect. That you could not sin so badly that God will not hear you. Do you hear that? Your access to God is not dependent on you, but on him. So when you pray... Pray like we saw Paul pray, boldly. Pray prayers that are shaped by the convictions of Christ. Pray believing that God hears you. 
Like, you remember that prayer from Paul. You remember the sorts of things he said. And you should also remember that he would sin again after that prayer. (laughs) He would make mistakes again after that prayer. He would show faithlessness again after that prayer. But Paul knows that God heard his prayer not because of Paul, but because of Jesus. That's why his prayer was heard. Amen? Amen. Lastly, we have direct access to God, even during worldly afflictions. Just read verse 33 real quickly. Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Is that an encouraging verse? I'm afraid sometimes that we read it and we don't maybe reflect carefully enough on it, so it becomes sort of a bland encouragement. But I want us to see that there are three truths and one command in this verse. The first truth is about peace. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Where can you have peace? In Jesus. There's a lot of different types of peace. The most important type of peace is peace with God. I said earlier that we're naturally enemies of God. We are not at peace with God. There are people in this room right now who have not trusted in Jesus as their Savior. You are not at peace with God. But Jesus tells you that in him you can have peace. You can have peace. If you trust in Jesus as your Savior, if you turn in repentance and faith, you can have peace. You can be safe. There's other types of peace, though, and those types of peace, I think, are derived from our peace with God. One is peace with other people. Is there anyone that you can think of in your life with whom you are not getting along? Maybe they're, like, sitting next to you right now. We are actually able to make peace with other people because God has made peace with us. You actually don't make peace by, like, you know, like, clenching your fist really tight and being like, I love you. You should say that to people. Instead, you remember how God made peace with you. How did he make peace with you? Through self-sacrifice. You have to murder your own pride. Get it. Also, peace with circumstances. Christ says, in me you will have peace. The next truth is about tribulation or trouble, affliction. He says, in me, you may have peace. And he says, in the world, you will have what? Jesus is saying, the world is going to beat you up. Anybody ever beat up? The word tribulation is almost always in our minds associated with like trouble at the end, the end times. And I think that's probably included in, in what Jesus says here, but I, I think he's talking about basically all kinds of trouble. All kinds of bad things. I think he's talking about persecution as the direct result of becoming a believer. I think he's talking about the fallen state of the world and the fact that we're all getting sick in different ways. And we're all going to die in different ways. And things are not always well. I think he's talking about strife with other people. I think he's talking about all kinds of trouble that we experience. We do not yet live in God's perfect future. We live in the world. And the world is not always kind to us. 
I think in our, um, in our particular time, like I, just a dangerous time that we live in, we happen to live in this place in, in history and on the planet where in our minds, the anomaly, the weird thing is when we experience affliction and the norm is prosperity and health. Do you, do you understand what I mean? Like, I can be, like, knocked down so easily. My Wi-Fi goes out, right? And I'm like, how could you, God? Do, do you see what, I, do you understand, do you understand what I'm saying? Like, I know that sounds absurd, but most of you, like, very minor things have happened, and you've been like, woe is me. <laughs> We're not uh, super accustomed to affliction, um, and I, I say that knowing there are people in this room experiencing real and authentic and terrible affliction right now. I'm not saying we don't experience affliction. I'm saying we're not accustomed to it. The anomaly, the weird thing is how prosperous many of our lives are, for the most part, right now, in this time, and in this place. So Jesus says, you can have peace in me, and Jesus says that you will experience affliction in this world, and then he says, I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. What does it mean for Jesus to have overcome the world? Well, one, he's overcome sin. He stands victorious over sin. You can read this in, in Hebrews. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Jesus has dealt with sin. He has solved the sin problem. Jesus uh, has also overcome the world in terms of its demonic forces. It feels weird for the third time in a row, to mention demons and Satan preaching. Um, but it just, it's a theme that, that John cares about and that the Bible cares about. Let me read you uh, Colossians. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross... He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus has overcome whatever spiritual forces are arrayed against God and his people. Over death. Second Timothy, he's overcome death. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner but share in suffering for the Gospels by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purposes and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. So those are the three truths. You can have peace in Jesus. That in this world, you will be troubled. You will experience affliction. And that Jesus has overcome the world. And then right before that last truth is the command. Hope Chapel, it's a command. It's a command. What is it? 
take heart. Have you ever tried to encourage someone and you're just like, take heart? They have to have a reason to take heart. You realize that? Like when someone's not well and you show up at their house and you want to encourage them and you're just like, be encouraged. And they're like, thanks. It's going to be okay. We can take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. If it didn't end that way, if Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, be encouraged. It would not be a helpful passage for us, but it's specific. God has already done the work to bring about his good future. He's already done the work to deal with sin and Satan and death. He's already died and risen again. He's ascended. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's ruling now. He'll return again. And we can believe that's true. So no matter what happens to us now, we can take heart. And it, like one other thing, the word for take heart, this is a weird translation of it. Uh, it really means like take courage or, or be courageous. It's translated that way other places. It's not just like the feeling of comfort. It's the execution of bravery. Meaning, whatever happens to me, uh, ultimately it will be okay because of what God has promised will happen in the end. I can be courageous and live a courageous Christian life, not afraid all the time. Not beaten down all the time. Not torn apart all the time. I want to show you one place where... where uh, the New Testament uses this word in the same way. It's take heart in John, but it's different here. Um, you know the story of Paul at the end. He's done all his missionary journeys, and those have all been really prosperous, easy journeys. Is that right? Guy gets shipwrecked multiple times. If I'm on one shipwreck, never getting on the ocean again. <laughs> multiple shipwrecks. He comes back to Jerusalem. He's told not to go there. And the final chapters of Acts, the last like eight or so chapters, are these series of trials and, and, and prison sentences that Paul's given for many, many years as he makes his way to Rome. There's this one crucial scary moment where Paul is defending himself in public. And they're so angry at what he's saying that they begin to riot. And so the Roman soldiers realize they have to intervene. And, and they're afraid that, that the, this is, he really means, they're afraid that the crowd is going to rip Paul apart. Not his arguments. Paul. <laughs> like, we got to get Paul and we got to get him somewhere safe. So they take him to the barracks, which probably served as a makeshift cell for him. Paul's very clearly to his mind coming to the end. He's had a hard ministry, and he's about to suffer even more. We know that he's probably eventually going to die in Rome. The Bible tells us he gets to Rome. It doesn't tell us how he dies. But that night in the barracks, after the Roman soldiers are uh, afraid that you know the crowd's going to tear him to pieces, we read this. Um, and and following in the following night, the Lord stood by him. Do you guys see that? The Lord what stood by him. <laughs> And said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. The Bible tells us uh, that Jesus will be with us even to the very end of the age. Do you believe that's true? Okay. We have access to God even during worldly affliction. When you are in a hospital bed, or you're standing next to someone that's in a hospital bed, and it's a person you love, when you are financially ruined and don't know how you're going to pay bills, when you are in the middle of conflict you cannot imagine could ever be resolved, 
when you are praying for your children, when you're concerned for your children, when you're, when you're praying, they'll just come to their senses. In all of these cases, you have direct access to God who hears you. And he tells you, he tells you, take heart, take heart. The Christian story, it begins with a cross, it ends with a throne. God will rule his people. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of your word, the fact that you sovereignly and, and graciously preserved it for us for these many, many years. We thank you for the faithful example of men and women who have gone before us and have been patterns and examples of obedience. We thank you most supremely for what it is you achieved through your son at the cross. We thank you that one of the benefits, one of the benefits of, of Jesus' work there is that we can pray to you. That even now, you hear this prayer, not because of our goodness, but because of the goodness of your son. We pray that you continue to teach us and bless us for all these things. In the great name of your son, Jesus, amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, I'd like to thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.